Our text uh, this Lord's Day is found in Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. This Lord's Day we embark upon a journey in which we move from a scriptural justification of national covenanting and the solemn Lehan covenant to an historical justification of national covenanting and the solemn league and covenant. We have sought to lay out the biblical principles involved in national covenanting as well to answer objections that have arisen over many years. Now we shift our attention to the application of those biblical principles to a specific historical national covenant, namely the Solemn League and Covenant. The Solemn League and Covenant does have the unique distinction of being the only national covenant in recent history, in the recent history of the past 500 years, and perhaps even much longer, in which three kingdoms bound themselves together and covenanted with God to be his people in a perpetual covenant until the sun and the moon and the stars ceased to shine. In this next stage of our study, the scripture will not be absent. However, uh, our goal at this point is to apply what we have already read and heard and learned from Scripture and to apply it to history. To see if these historical circumstances and this historical covenant measures up to what the Scripture says. 
is a faithful national covenant. And if indeed we are the posterity of those who originally swore the solemn league and covenant. With that in mind, I would like to turn our attention very briefly today to a biblical discussion of history and its importance to us. Just by way of preliminary consideration, the importance of history to us. And with that in mind, let us turn to Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. And from this text, I would like to answer three questions. What is history? From a scriptural perspective, that is. For whom is history relevant? And thirdly, why is history relevant? First of all, then, what is history? Well, simply stated, history is, as some have noted, his, that is, God's story. History, dear ones, is the outworking of God's eternal plan wherein God glorifies his justice and his grace in history, in time. Note in Psalm 78.4 what it is that we are not to hide from our children, but rather are to show them. Quote, the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. Dear ones, history is not just a recollection of who begat whom, and when so and so died. History is not a mere continuum of unrelated events in time that bear no relationship one to another. History is telling the mighty acts of God in time wherein He saves undeserving sinners and judges people and nations that hate Him and forget Him. According to Psalm 78.4, history consists of God's actions and God's work in time wherein He reveals His praise. He reveals His strength and His power. And He reveals His wonderful works of justice and mercy. Beloved, we not only read of God's mighty works in the book of Scripture. We not only read of God's mighty works in the book of nature all around us as we behold the vast and complex universe which the Lord has made, but we behold the mighty acts of God in the book of history and providence from the beginning of time until now. Of course, the book of nature and the book of history must be interpreted by God as he has revealed it in Scripture. Therefore, history is not and ought not to be boring because 
in every event, whether great or small, whether it's the history of nations, the uprising of nations, or the the destruction of nations, or whether it's with regard to the details of your own personal history, every event shows forth God's mighty hand that it is at work governing all events in accordance with his most wise and most holy eternal purpose and plan. History reveals that Almighty God is near us. That he is eminent. He is with us. That we live and move and have our being in God. He is the atmosphere, as it were, in which we live and move and everything that happens in this world happens within that atmosphere. It also, history also reveals that God is personal. That He is a God of wrath. A God to be feared. A God of holiness. A God of justice. And yet a God of goodness. A God of love and mercy and faithfulness to His covenant. History also reveals to us that God is most wise, most just, and most merciful. He is not a God who has simply created us and then taken some celestial vacation from us. God has visited this sinful world in a very particular and special way and has redeemed undeserving sinners in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the central figure of all history. Nations and individuals that trust Christ, love and serve Him, will be saved, preserved, and blessed. Nations and individuals that hate Christ, ignore and neglect Him, will be judged. The second question from our text. For whom is history relevant? History is not only relevant to historians and to those with degrees behind their names. History is relevant to you and to your children for a thousand generations to come. Note to whom the history of God's praise, God's strength, and God's wonderful works is to be told and to be explained in Psalm 78, verses 5-6. through For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. 
Dear ones, to say that history is unimportant or irrelevant is to say that God is irrelevant and unimportant and that what he does is unimportant and irrelevant. To say that history is irrelevant is to say that you and your posterity are irrelevant. For you and your posterity also display the mighty acts of God in time. From one generation to the next, our job as Christian parents, Christian grandparents, is to open the book of Scripture, the book of nature, and the book of history for our children so that they might behold the mighty God who goes forth riding upon the clouds of heaven like a chariot and saving undeserving sinners throughout history, but also saving in particular such an undeserving sinner as is that child of yours and as you yourself are as parents. And thirdly, why is history relevant? It should be apparent that since history reveals God and his mighty acts, that it is relevant if we would grow in our knowledge of him. History not only reveals God's mighty acts, but also reveals those who trust the Lord, who love him, and who obey him. And on the other hand, those who hate him, forget him, and disobey him. History reveals to us a a faithful people who have followed Christ and also an unfaithful people who have served themselves in their own imaginations. There was history is relevant because we are doomed to repeat the sins of our forefathers if we do not learn from their sins and errors and backslidings. Look what Psalm 78 verses 7 through 8 says. This is what we are to, or the reason why we are to pass on to our children the mighty acts of God that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and might not be as their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God Beloved, one of the sins that we commit and into which we fall that leads us into so many other sins is our forgetfulness of God's mighty acts in judging and in saving people. Because we are sinners, we want to think that we are sovereign over our own lives. That we are Lord and Master over our own lives. And we don't want, by nature, others, especially God, to tell us how we are to walk, how we are to live, how we are to speak and think. And by nature, we rebel against that. Every one of us do, by nature. 
lest we do not want to be reminded of what God has done in history. We only want to be, to be reminded of what we have done. How much more, dear ones, we are likely to forget God and go on our own way when we do not see him personally involved in all that happens to us. If he's simply a God who is a million miles away and he's not involved in our lives and we do not see him as involved in our lives, then we will forget him and we will walk in our own ways and not in his ways. We are much more likely to repeat the sin failures and backslidings of our fathers when we do not learn from history what God would teach us. We can only fulfill God's command to follow the faithful, to walk in the steps of the faithful who have preceded us when we have an eye to scripture and history so as to distinguish the faithful from the unfaithful, which we are commanded to do in Hebrews 6 verses 11 through 12. The Lord will humble all who forget him and will bless all who remember him to humbly fear him and to joyfully praise him for all that he's done in history and has done in their own personal history in daily saving them, correcting them, and providing for them. Well, now that we have a biblical a brief biblical overview of history. Let us turn our attention the remaining time today to a period of history that greatly reveals the mighty acts of God in time. I would like to give a very brief historical overview of events. First of all, events leading up to the Solemn League and Covenant. Second, events surrounding the Solemn League and Covenant. And finally, thirdly, events following the Solemn League and Covenant. First main point, events leading up to the Solemn League and Covenant. One major set of events leading up to the Solemn League and Covenant revolved around the doctrine and practice that kings are absolute in their power and authority to rule over their kingdoms and over their subjects absolute in rule over both church and state this doctrine and practice obtained particular significance in England beginning with the rule of Henry VIII of England when he severed his ties with papal Rome which we would say was good but on the other hand what he passed as far as an act was the Supremacy Act on November the 3rd, 1534, or I should say Parliament passed by way of Henry's uh, urging, in which Henry and his successors were declared to be, quote, the only supreme head, end of quote, on earth over the Church of England. In so doing, England simply exchanged one earthly head over the church, namely the Pope, for another, namely the King. 
The Solemn League and Covenant set forth the biblical doctrine that kings and rulers were only to be preserved in their rule, defended in their rule, as they preserved, protected, and defended the one true Christian religion revealed in Holy Scripture. The Solemn League and Covenant made clear that the king was not absolute in his authority, but that the king and parliament ruled together under God for the glory of God and the good of the people. That wicked system of rule over the church by the king or by the civil magistrate was called Erastianism. The name being derived from Thomas Erastus, not Erasmus, but Thomas Erastus, a physician at Heidelberg who promoted the doctrine of the magistrate's rule over the church in 1568. You see, dear ones, Erastianism robbed Christ of his sole rule over the church. The civil magistrate, by way of Erastianism, usurped the crown right of Christ as mediatorial king over his church. And this unjust power and tyranny of especially the Stuart monarchs, James I and Charles I, led the kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland to defend themselves against this tyranny and to engage themselves collectively as one party with God to, uphold, to uphold the absolute rule alone of Christ over his church and a limited role of the king or the civil magistrate over his kingdoms in the civil realm. So that was the first major set of events leading up to the Solemn League and Covenant. A second set of events leading up to the Solemn League and Covenant follows from the first, namely that a system of church government needed to be established that would best comport with the king's absolute authority. Thus, prelacy was established as the system of church government in England and Ireland and was established but firmly resisted in Scotland until it was finally overthrown. Prelacy was that system that made a hierarchy within the church wherein the king appointed archbishops and bishops to do his bidding in the church. Within prelacy there was no equality of authority among ministers but rather a hierarchy of one man over other men within the church. Authority was not invested into the hands of a plurality of ministers and elders, but into the hand of one man who then passed that authority to minister, to ordain, to preach on to those under him. There was no place for the biblical office of ruling elder or for the establishment of a session or presbytery in the prelacy practiced in Britain. Again, this prelacy recognized the King of England as the earthly head of the church. Tremendous abuses occurred within the church 
as a result of prelacy and they were legislated into law by archbishops and bishops who sought to curry the favor of James I and Charles I. Thirdly and finally, for the purpose of this brief overview, the events leading up to this solemn league and covenant culminated in a desire for the three kingdoms to be united as one in a civil league and in an ecclesiastical covenant with God. Just as we noted that there were both civil and ecclesiastical components to the national covenant renewal at the time uh, in the scripture at the time of the priest Jehoiada and the young king jo- Joash in 2 Kings 11 17 so the three kingdoms of England, Ireland and Scotland having the same king but separate parliaments saw their duty to bind themselves to God as his people in order to defend the lawful rights of the king, parliament, and people, and in order to protect the lawful rights of Christ in promoting the true reformed religion of the Bible, and to do so in uniformity throughout the three kingdoms. One doctrine, one worship, one discipline, and one church government. They sought to implement at a national level the blessed truth found in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 as they faced the onslaught of of Erastianism and as they faced the onslaught of prelacy and the tyranny of unlimited kings. They came together with this in mind Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 9, 10 and 12 two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor for if they fall the one will lift up his fellow but woe to him that is alone when he falleth for he hath not another to help him and then verse 12 and if one prevail against him two shall withstand him and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Dear when social covenants, whether marriage, familial social covenants, ecclesiastical, civil, and business, bind us to perform our duties to one another, seeking the grace of God to be faithful for the glory of God and for the good of ourselves and our posterity. We bind ourselves in these covenants. Our second main point has to do with events surrounding the Solemn League and Covenant. Charles I, having sought to bring his kingdoms, the three kingdoms, under his absolute sway of authority, found resistance to this tyranny among the kingdoms. Led first by Scotland, who set out the principles of the king's rightful place in their own national covenant of 1638, which incidentally Charles I approved and signed 
but subsequently sought to bring Scotland under his tyrannous power by going to war against her. And eventually, Charles I backed down when confronted with a very determined Scotland who was not willing to allow the king to subject them any longer to that absolute rule. This stand of Scotland against Charles I likewise encouraged England to resist the king's tyranny as well. And the king raised his royal forces against Parliament and against his own people. Parliament and the people defended themselves against the military force of Charles I, but lacked the resources to overcome the king's royal forces. So Parliament saw their hope of victory lying in a civil covenant with Scotland to subdue together the hostilities of this tyrannous king. Thus Parliament looked to a civil covenant with Scotland as a means of defending themselves against the absolute rule and tyranny of Charles I. Now Scotland, on the other hand, had sought on previous occasions to discuss with England the importance of uniting together in a religious covenant made unto God whereby they would be joined together in one doctrine, worship, discipline, and government. Scotland rightly saw this religious covenant as the basis and foundation of preserving and protecting not only the one true reformed religion, but in also protecting the lawful civil liberties of king, parliament, and people. There was a religious tyranny will always lead to political and civil tyranny. Whereas religious reformation and uniformity in the truth will always lead to civil reformation and liberty. If Christ, dear ones, is dethroned from his rightful place of rule in his church, usurpation and political expediency and tyranny will naturally follow in the course of events. So, we have seen just in these two points uh, just laid out that England sought a covenant with Scotland. They wanted a, a, a civil compact, con contract, a civil league. It was Scotland's desire to have an ecclesiastical religious covenant with England. They brought these two together in the Solemn League and Covenant as we have noted was the case in the covenant that Jehoiada established between the king, the people, and God and simply between the king and the people. Civil and a religious covenant. Alexander Henderson, a godly and learned minister from the Church of Scotland, drafted the Solemn League and Covenant. After approval by the Church of Scotland, it was presented to the Parliament of England. The Solemn League and Covenant clearly laid out in the first article 
the following three standards that were to be followed in bringing reformation and uniformity in religion to the British Isles. Let me quickly note those three standards that were noted that are mentioned in the first article of the Solemn League and Covenant. The first standard of reformation in the Solemn League and Covenant states, quote, that we shall sincerely, really, and constantly through the grace of God, endeavor in our several places and callings the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government against our common enemies. Carefully note that the covenant calls for the, quote, preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland, in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government, end of quote. Not the reformation of religion in Scotland, but the preservation of it in Scotland. Whereas in England and Ireland, it is not the preservation of religion that is required, but rather, quote, as the Solemn League and Covenant continues in the first article, it says, the reformation, not preservation, but the reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government. Now, what is implied? By preserving the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government in Scotland and reforming the doctrine worship, discipline, and government in England and Ireland. Well, what is implied is that Scotland has attained a much greater degree of reformation than either England or Ireland. That Scotland is in some sense to be a standard to the reformation that occurs in England and Ireland. That the English and Irish are to look to the Scots and their religion that has been attained there. Which was a Presbyterian Reformation in Scotland. A Presbyterian Reformation. You see, what the Scots understood was that this portion of the covenant bound England and Ireland to bring about religious reformation conformable to that of Scotland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government. Now, this became a very important issue in subsequent years when English independence departed from the uniformity that was required in the Solemn League and Covenant in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government. And they, the independents, rather pushed for toleration of various religious sects, thereby promoting ecclesiastical schism and division within the churches and within the kingdoms. The second, reform, or the second standard of reformation in the Solemn League and Covenant in that first article states, quote, the reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland in doctrine, worship, 
discipline and government according to the word of God. This obviously is the final and supreme standard for all reformation. The independence in the Westminster Assembly, just again by way of historical note, finding they were unable to convince the Assembly, the Westminster Assembly, that their position on church government was of divine right as found in Scripture turned to political expediency to bring about the desired results of promoting independency and squashing Presbyterianism. The independents violated their own word and submitted copies of their independent platform of church government to the parliament without previously allowing the Westminster Assembly the opportunity to first review and discuss that document entitled The Apologetical Narration. Incidentally, which the members of the assembly had previously promised to do, to bring documents to the Westminster Assembly first to be discussed before submitting it to the parliament. They bypassed the assembly, the Westminster Assembly, and went to Parliament because they did not believe they were making headway with their quote-unquote scriptural arguments. And so they resorted to political expediency. Thus, when biblical arguments were not successful, they resorted to pragmatism in violation of their own promise. And the third standard of reformation that's stated in the Solemn League and Covenant in the first article states that reformation in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government would be according to, quote, the example of the best reformed churches. And simply the question is, do we know of any reformed churches and in any of the nations that were independent, that practiced independency? And the answer is no. But the churches in the Reformed nations, those Reformed churches in the Reformed nations, did not believe in sectarianism. They did not believe in promoting sectarianism. They rather believed in promoting uniformity of one church within each nation and so that third standard the example of the best reformed churches would drive them as well to Presbyterian conclusions one other point just very quickly about events surrounding the Solemn League and Covenant the Solemn League and Covenant was sworn by church and state in England, Ireland, and Scotland, and by the people of every class through the years 1643 through 1644, and in the immediately following years as well. So that these three kingdoms did become covenanted nations. The third and final point. Uh, this Lord's Day, events following the Solemn League and Covenant. First of all, political leverage on the part of the independents 
in appealing to independence within the parliament in places of authority such as to Oliver Cromwell and to his parliamentary army brought the Solemn League and Covenant to a place of various interpretations so that rather than having one interpretation of the Solemn League and Covenant there were multitudes of interpretations of the Solemn League and Covenant posed by the independents and sectarians that were not raised at the time that the Solemn League and Covenant was taken and sworn by the three kingdoms. And there was furthermore outright denial of the covenant, the Solemn League and Covenant, because it did not promote sectarianism. It did not promote tolerationism. It did not promote denominationalism, but rather condemned all of these as that which must be uprooted from the nation and church. Although the independents had sworn to endeavor by God's grace to uproot sectarianism in England, they rather protected it and established it as their national religion under Cromwell. In Scotland just looking at a couple of events in Scotland. In Scotland, there was the political intrigue of those who were called engagers, who sought to restore Charles I to his place of authority upon the throne in order to destroy Cromwell and his independence. The engagers thought they could work out a compromise with Charles I in order to deal sectarianism a deathly blow. It, however, proved to be unsuccessful and those involved in this plan that was endorsed by the Parliament of Scotland were condemned as malignant covenant breakers by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in 1649 for using political expediency to achieve a good goal of uprooting sectarianism. You see, Charles I had not yet taken the Solemn League and Covenant. He had been removed from a place of actual rule. He was still king, but he was not allowed to rule, exercise his authority in rule until he swore the Solemn League and Covenant. <coughs> and he had not done so. And he was trying to work out a compromise where he would uh, for three years have Presbyterianism to be the government of the church within his kingdoms. But after that three years, he would gather all of his church leaders together and they would rework and come together to rework whatever plan they came up with at that time. And the engagers thought that it was worth taking this type of a position in order to deal with Cromwell and his independence. Dear ones, the ends, as we know from Scripture, do not justify the means. And we do not do evil that good may come, according to Romans 3.8. And so these engagers proved to be covenant breakers and the anti-engagers proved to be covenant keepers. 
One other case of political expediency within Scotland brought the Solemn League and Covenant into virtual scorn and the Church of Scotland into fractured disrepair. The issue was whether those who had previously been removed from the army or from holding political office in the parliament by the Act of Classes, the Act of Classes in 1649 removed from the military, from, from offices in parliament, those who were either covenant breakers who would not own the covenant, who would not swear the covenant. So the act of classes was in keeping with the Solemn League and Covenant. It was implementing the Solemn League and Covenant. And yet, again due to political expediency, there were resolutions, public resolutions, that were proposed by those called the Resolutioners in 1650 to Parliament to restore to their former places of authority in the military and in the government those who had been removed without having a demonstrably proven track record of repentance. Simply because they needed more men and they believed qualified military and government men in places to be able to fight against Cromwell, they declared that these men should be restored to their original places. The protesters, however, who protested against the public resolutions, the protesters declared that such malignant violators of the Solemn League and Covenant could not be immediately restored and to do so was to break covenant with God. The result was a division within the Church of Scotland that has never yet been healed. The faithful protesters would not be moved from the biblical and moral principles found in the Solemn League and Covenant and though they were the minority, vastly outnumbered by, by the resolutioners, they stood their ground. And the resolutioners were the ones who moved the scriptural landmarks that had been established by the Solemn League and Covenant. Now about the same time there in Scotland as the resolutioners were seeking to fortify their military with covenant breakers they were also working closely with Charles II the son of now executed Charles I executed by the parliament under Cromwell in England again due to political pressure and expediency there was not due caution taken to try and test the convictions of Charles II. Charles II swore the Solemn League and Covenant at Spey in, on June the 23rd, 1650 and at Schoon, January the 1st, 1651, that is at his coronation. The Scottish resolutioners rallied behind Charles II, but Cromwell soundly defeated Charles II and he fled 
to France. Charles II, however, was restored to the throne in 1660 and approximately six months later, in January the 25th, 1661, he, along with Parliament, repudiated, disavowed, made null and void the solemn league and covenant as far as having rule within the three kingdoms. Now, he didn't have the power morally to do so, but he exercised legislative power within the the kingdoms to accomplish that. Let me close this historical overview today by stating that when the so-called glorious revolution in 1688 occurred, that is when William and Mary came to the throne of Britain and when James II fled for his life to France, And at that time, when the Scottish Church was nationally established again, it was not established on the basis of the Solemn League and Covenant, nor was it established upon the basis of the Reformation that occurred in Scotland between 1638 and 1649, that highest point of Reformation and purity within the Church of Scotland and within the kingdom of Scotland. This established church, re-established church, after the uh, so-called glorious revolution, showed itself to be unfaithful and covenant-breaking in denying its biblical constitution and its lawful constitution long since established by civil and ecclesiastical law in Scotland as well as in England and in Ireland. This is why, in part, though there certainly were many other sound reasons, this is why faithful covenanters did not unite with that revolution church, that established church. Nor can they even to this day recognize as faithful any Presbyterian church that proceeds from such covenant-breaking origins while they yet continue in a state of unrepentant covenant-breaking. Dear ones, we started this sermon with seeking to understand the proper role of history. As we noted, in history, we see the mighty acts and works of God in judging those who break covenant with Him and in blessing those who keep covenant with Him. Now, we may be few in number presently, but we stand in the paths trodden by our faithful covenant-keeping forefathers. We will not be moved as our faithful forefathers were not moved from these paths by the sarcasm of others, by the malice of others, by the attacks of others, or by the backsliding of the vast majority of Christian churches, even Reformed churches. And even by the backsliding of Christian brethren whom we love in the Lord. May God help us to learn from history the price that we must pay for standing 
for the truth. And may we firmly stand there until the Lord removes us from this world by death. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before Thee, our covenant-keeping God, and do confess our covenant-breaking, that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed against, Lord, the covenant of grace, against our baptismal covenant, against the solemn legal covenant, and against any other covenants, Lord, that we have established, we have sinned against them. But, Lord, we pray that Thou would have mercy upon us, that we would renew our our covenant with Thee, that we would take up, Lord, the covenant that have been trodden underfoot, that we would hold high the banner of Christ. Lord, that Thou would help us to stand and not be moved, to not not remove those ancient landmarks of our forefathers. We thank Thee, our God, for the acting of God in history. We thank thee that, Lord, thou dost distinguish between thy faithful people, thy faithful church, and that unfaithful church. And, Lord, we would pray that thou would help us to walk in the steps of thy faithful people, recognizing that with it comes much suffering, isolation, And Lord, we grow impatient, waiting that glorious time when, Lord, those faithful covenants will be renewed. And Thou wilt unite Thy people again in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government. We pray for it, Lord. We pray that Thou would hasten that time. We plead with Thee, God, with tears that Thou would restore Thine ancient people, Israel, unto Thyself, and that the the fullness of the Gentiles would be brought in. We look to our Savior to accomplish these things, for He is great and mighty, and no enemy can stand in His path. We thank Thee that He is the faithful covenant keeper, and we trust in His righteousness and in His covenant keeping for our acceptance before Thee and not in our own. We ask these things through Christ our Savior. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.